And if you will, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, verses 14 to 17. This is our scripture reading this morning, Matthew 21, 14 to 17. And then our sermon passage this morning is taken from 2 Samuel chapter uh, chapter 6, rather, verses 12 to 23. So we'll be finishing up chapter 6 from where we left off a few weeks back now. So again, our sermon passage, 2 Samuel 6, 12 to 23. Our scripture reading, which we'll read first, is from Matthew chapter 21, verses 14 to 17. Brothers and sisters, as always, I remind you, it's an important reminder, this is the word of the Lord. There are many, many people on this earth, whether they know the Lord or not, who long for a word from God. They long for the Lord to speak to them. The Lord speaks to you every time you crack open your Bible and read its pages. The Lord speaks to you every Lord's Day when you gather in this assembly and God's Word is read. You read it along with me. The Lord is speaking to you. There's no one more important in all the world than the Lord. And He's speaking to you now, so please give your full attention to His Word. Matthew 21, 14 to 17. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and lodged there. Now turning to 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning at verse 12 and reading through the end of the chapter. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom, and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him. In her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. 
But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This ends the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, inspired, infallible word. His word, which he has kept, preserved for you. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are grateful again that we have your word, that we hear it read, that we hold it in our hands. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would teach us how to handle it aright, that you would teach us how to understand it properly. We pray that by your spirit we would delight in your word, that we would hide it in our hearts, that we would cherish it, and that it would shape us, that it would mold us, that it would turn us into the people you would have us to be. And so, dear Lord, we ask for the guidance of your Holy Spirit. We pray that the one who bore up the human authors, the one who breathed out and into the human authors, we pray, dear Lord, that he would lead us now as your word is being preached, that he would guide us into understanding. May you be glorified, O Lord, as we worship you through the preaching and the hearing of the preached word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now the last verse in our passage this morning is the last time that David's wife McCall's name is mentioned in 2 Samuel. It's the second to the last time that it will ever be mentioned in Scripture. It's mentioned again in the Chronicles. It's mentioned in this same episode, though slightly uh, differently told. And it's a sad ending to what turned out to be a mostly joyful celebration, this chapter. Now you'll remember, earlier in the chapter, the first part of the chapter, David's first attempt at moving the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem ended in failure three months prior to the events of which we have just read in this second half of chapter 6. As David and all Israel were joyfully escorting the Ark on its way from Kiriath-Jerim, the Ark, having wrongly been placed on a flat-bedded wagon, at least appeared to be about to fall off of the wagon as it went over some rough terrain. And so Uzzah, this man who was walking alongside of the wagon, reached out to touch the ark and was struck dead by the Lord. This was a catastrophe. And you remember that David was very angry. He was upset with the Lord, but he was also very, very afraid. And so rather than attempting on that day to to continue to bring the ark to Jerusalem, he gave up at least for a time. And so... The ark was taken to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, he was an Israelite. That doesn't mean that he was from outside of Israel. It's just that he lived in this town. And it remained there at his house for three months. And during that time, the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Now, in verse 12 of our passage this morning, we read about how the word reached David's ears, that the Lord had blessed Obed-Edom. And so he decided to try once again to bring the ark into Jerusalem. And as the passage shows, the Lord blessed David's endeavor, and the ark was brought into Jerusalem with much fanfare and celebration. But there was one person, it seems, only one person in all of the city, in all of Israel, whose heart was not in it. Instead of joining in the celebration of the ark being brought to Jerusalem, Michal, David's wife, looked down upon the festivities from her room through a window. She looked down upon them, and she looked particularly down upon her husband with contempt. Now, 
you could safely make the argument. I think it's understandable. McCall had been dealt a bad hand. There was a time back in 1 Samuel chapter 18 when she truly loved David. But it isn't clear that that love that she had for David was ever reciprocated back to her. And McCall was used for much of her life as a political pawn by her father, and now it seems by her husband. But it appears that McCall had allowed the circumstances in her life, which we'll get into in greater detail later on, she had allowed those circumstances to crowd out her ability to celebrate something that was truly worth celebrating, the return of the ark to the, of the Lord to its central place of prominence in Israel. It had never been in Jerusalem before, but it had always been in the capital city, the seat of power. And McCall should have been down there in the streets celebrating, not only with her husband, with all the rest of Israel, but she was not. As we work our way through the sermon today, I would ask you to keep this thought in front of you. The Lord's presence with His people is something that we should celebrate. And Jesus Christ has set His people free to join in. The Lord's presence with His people is something we should celebrate. And Jesus Christ has set His people free to join in. The sermon has two parts, two points today. The first point, benedictions. And the second, maledictions. You could put it another way. Blessings, the first point. Curses, the second. But we'll go with the fancy words. Benedictions and maledictions. So let's begin with the first point of the sermon, benedictions. Obed-Edom and his whole household and everything that belonged to him, we read in the first two verses of our passage, it was all blessed by the Lord while the Ark of the Covenant was under his care. And after three months, as we've already said, David heard about it, it reached his ears, and David overcame his fear, at least to a certain degree, enough to go down and to begin the process of bringing the Ark to Jerusalem. And so verse 12 says that David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Now this verse, verse 12, it doesn't all happen in that verse. You get to verse 13, you realize that he still got the process of getting the Ark to Jerusalem to go. Verse 12 just tells us it's going to happen. We don't have to worry this time. The Ark does make it. Verse 12 lets us go. And though the specifics aren't given in our passage, we can rest assured that this time the ark of the Lord was carried appropriately, exactly as prescribed in Numbers 4. We get a, we get a sense of that in verse 13. When we read, And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened animal. They were bearing the ark this time. They hadn't slapped it on a cart being drawn by oxen where it might slip off and hit the ground. However, as we just read there in verse 13, after six steps of carrying the ark, one less, sacred, one less than the sacred number seven, as one commentator helpfully pointed out, the procession came to a halt, and David sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal there. David understood that step number seven, the divine number, might turn out to be a doozy. And so he wanted to take no chances. He would stop at six... He would sacrifice animals. 
The memory of Uzzah's death was still vivid in his and the people's minds, and they did not want to repeat. The sacrifices of the animals was probably also a way to make make atonement for David's errors in the first attempt at bringing the ark to Jerusalem. But it was most certainly with fear and trepidation that they took that seventh step after having sacrificed the animals. And verse 14 says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. David is filled with such unfettered and unfeigned joy that he breaks into dance as he leads the procession toward Jerusalem. Now this verse, and this word dance, this particular word that's translated dance there in verse 14 and then later on in verse 16, it's only used in those two places in all the Old Testament. There are other places that talk about breaking out into singing and dancing and things like that. But this particular word is used only these two times, and it's meaning to twirl, the literal meaning there. And I contemplated whether or not to talk about this in light of what we, in our Reformed circles, refer to as the regulative principle of worship. And I'll venture into it just a little bit today. I'll say this, you will never see me, I don't believe, unless the Spirit overpowers me in such a way, you won't see me engaging in a liturgical dance up here before the church on the Lord's Day. Probably not any other time as well. I don't believe that this passage is an endorsement or a prescription for what has come to be known in the church as liturgical dancing. If you've ever been a part of it, not to slam it, not to denigrate it, um, Um, I don't think that's what this passage is referring to. But that being said, we have to acknowledge that there are some cultures outside of of our own, I'll leave that to your imagination to what I mean, there's some cultures, though, who do incorporate movements into their worship. There are places in Scripture where we are commanded, Psalm 150 being an instance, where we're commanded to sing and to dance. And so I'd be very reluctant to look down upon those with contempt who do engage in that kind of expression of worship. I want to be very cautious and careful trying to thread a a thin line here or a a, a very thin needle. Be, Be very careful there, but I think we need to be gracious to other cultures for whom this is a part of their worship. Any type of worship can become ostentatious. It can be done for the benefit of those around instead of actually before the audience of the Lord. And so we all have to guard against offering up worship, which is really hollow and not well meant. But David danced before the Lord. And I have seen some of our children in this church over the years joyfully join in with movements of their bodies and they're doing so not for uh, to make an impression upon the adults but they're so overtaken with worship that they're using their whole selves to worship the Lord I think that's what David is doing here so is it a prescription for our behavior I don't know not necessarily don't think it's a prescription for 
liturgical dance in the sense that it has become known in America today. But I don't know that we ought to prohibit people from using their bodies in a way that is worshipful to the Lord. But David himself, he is filled with such unfettered and unfeigned joy that he breaks into dance. And he dances, verse 14 says, with all of his might before the Lord. And verse 14 also says that he's wearing a linen ephod there, a priestly garment, the king. But we know that David, as the type of Christ, as one who in the Old Testament most assuredly pointed to the Christ who was to come, he served both as a priest and a king as well as a prophet at various times in his administration. And this linen ephod, according to one Old Testament scholar, it was something appropriate uh, that a king, as a kingdom of priests, was entitled to wear. The shofar, the, the, the horn of a ram, it was blown. And people were shouting. And David and the people went with the ark into Jerusalem with celebration. They were overcome with joy. Now, our first sign that things aren't well on the home front for David is found in verse 16. And we read there, and it's more than just a simple hidden sign. It's pretty clear. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now, that's a pretty close to literal translation of what's there in the original, but I think we could also take away, we could, we could slightly interpret it to say she despised him from the bottom of her heart. Because she does not keep her despising of David a secret. She holds him in contempt and she lets him know at first opportunity. But the first clue is the fact that McCall is not down there in the streets with her people. With all of Israel. With her, her fellow Benjamites of the tribe of Benjamin. She was not down there with her husband. She was looking down upon them from a window above. David was down below with the priests who were setting the ark up in its place in this tent, probably the tabernacle. And verse 17 says that he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. He was doing the duties of a priest here. And when he had finished, verses 18 and 19 say that he blessed the people in the Lord's name and distributed to everyone bread and meat and cakes of raisins. And after that, everyone departed to his own house and David went to his own house. And verse 20 says that he went back to bless his house in the same way that he blessed all of these other households. Really, the Lord was blessing these households through David. But when he got home, things took a turn. And that leads us to the second point of the sermon, maledictions. You see, it seems that a cancer had been growing in David's marriage to McCall. And it appears that David was not aware of this cancer. Verse 20 says, And David returned to bless his household, but McCall, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today. She's being very, very sarcastic. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. McCall's words dripped with venom as she spat them at, in disgust at David. And now at this point, your temptation may be to immediately run to the defense of David. Maybe half of the congregation is thinking, well, that's no fair. David, come on. He's a great guy. 
Well, perhaps the other half of the congregation is saying, not so fast. It might unquestioningly be on Team McCall. But bear, bear in mind that you are looking through a window with a very limited aperture upon a marriage with an above average number of complexities to it. This is not just any old marriage. This is the marriage of McCall, the daughter of Saul, to David, Saul's arch enemy, the man who he tried to kill for years, chased him down. And Saul was driven to madness out of fits of jealousy over David and all of the attention that he got. Now, our understanding of David's and McCall's marriage, it's very limited. And so wisdom would be to hold off on taking sides too much here. We do know, as was mentioned at the beginning, that there was a time when McCall loved David. But that was years before, and there's never any record of David having a similar love for McCall. No record in Scripture that David loved McCall. Now, you remember that Saul originally was going to give McCall's older sister, Merab, to David. But then he, in a fit of whimsy, gave Merab to another man. And then Saul found out that McCall, his younger daughter, loved David. And he saw an opportunity for political gain. And so he told David he could have her as his wife as long as certain conditions were met. David met those conditions with flying colors. He went above and beyond And by the end of 1 Samuel chapter 18, David and McCall were married. But you'll also remember, if you go back and look at chapter 18, you'll remember that chapter 18 marks the beginning of Saul's psychotic attempts to kill David, to murder him, which undoubtedly, almost immediately, put a very serious, severe strain upon their marriage, if you can imagine such a thing. The wife of David's father... The father of David's wife, rather, is trying to kill David. And in 1 Samuel 19, McCall proved her love for David. She demonstrated her love for David by saving his life when her, when her father sent, quote-unquote, messengers after David. They were really there to kill him. But McCall had already, she caught word, caught wind of it. She had already helped David to escape before the messengers arrived. And then David went into hiding. He was constantly fleeing from Saul. You remember all of this from earlier this year, late last year. He spent years in hiding, staying away from Saul. Had opportunities to kill Saul. Had his men telling him, you must kill this man. And David would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. And by 1 Samuel 25, Saul used Michal again. Gave her in marriage to another man, Palti, the son of Laish of Galim. And it seems, despite all of the odds, that these two had probably been able to carve out a decent life together. Despite everything else. And in the meantime, David was taking wives to himself. And by the time that Saul died and Abner began working out his scheme for David to become king, McCall had been married to Palti for several years. But you remember that earlier in 2 Samuel, in chapter 3, part of the conditions for David accepting Abner's plan for David to become king of all of Israel, in addition to Judah, was that Michal be returned to him. You see, any children that Michal might bear to Palti, those would become competitors for the throne. 
And so in 2 Samuel chapter 3, Michal was returned to David. But Palti, you remember, he tried to follow her. He was weeping alongside her as she was being taken to David. And at that point, she was back with David. But as our passage today shows us, she clearly was not happy about it. And frankly, it's hard to blame her for being unhappy. It's hard to blame her for being maybe a little bitter. But when she speaks to David, it isn't a little bitterness that comes out. And what verse 20 hits, hints at is this. She, she apparently did this in front of other people in David's court. We read there that Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. She didn't wait for him to enter into the privacy of their own home. She met him outside and she laid into him. She wanted publicly to humiliate David. But she tells David that he's already humiliated himself. She talks as if David had been dancing naked in front of all of these people. She makes specific reference to the female servants who were there. And she's implying that everything that David did was not done for the Lord, but in order to ingratiate himself with the women of his kingdom. Now, David wasn't naked. But to McCall's way of thinking, the king wearing anything but his royal garments was insufficient. David was wearing the priestly garments that other priests wore. It wasn't inappropriate for him to be in front of the ark. But to McCall, he might as well have been naked. McCall looked down on the worship that David was offering to the Lord and saw it through the eyes of a cynic and gave David's actions the worst possible interpretation. Now, this isn't to excuse McCall's actions, but this is what people do when they've been deeply hurt, when they've been wounded. And David had wounded McCall. Her father had wounded McCall. David responds to McCall in verses 21 and 22, and his speech to her is twice as long as her speech was to him. He tells her, at first, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. David tells her he wasn't doing this for anyone other than Yahweh himself. He was not dancing for the ladies. He wasn't dancing for the crowds. He wasn't doing anything to impress anyone. He was dancing. He was worshiping. He was singing praises to the Lord and to him alone. He goes on to say that he's not afraid to abase himself even more before the Lord. He says, I I will make myself yet more contemptible than this and will be abased in your eyes. He doesn't care what McCall thinks about the worship that he's offering up to the Lord. And so David isn't afraid to be humiliated in service to the Lord. But McCall's words have stung David. His response makes that evident. When he tells her in verse 21 that it was the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me a prince over Israel. He's putting her in her place. The house of Saul is done. It's over. God had chosen him, he's saying. And that had the clear implication that God had rejected her father. Now this was true. But we can use the truth as a weapon to hurt other people. And I think that that unfortunately is what David was doing with the truth here. 
And then he tells her in verse 22, after saying that he will make himself more contemptible and be abased in her eyes, he says, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. David is saying, you can despise me. But all of these other girls, all these other women, they won't. And that was a jab. That was intended to hurt. It was intended to cause pain. What probably at one point was righteous anger at her husband, McCall had allowed to turn into bitterness. But I want to say that we have to be very careful about sitting in judgment over a person who lived 3,000 years ago. We don't know the full story. We need to be charitable in our interpretation. And sadly, it's likely that the only other person McCall could have spoken to about all of this was her other husband, Paul T., and that statement alone shows what unusual, unusual and terrible circumstances McCall had found herself in. The closing verse of the chapter seals the tragedy of McCall's circumstances. And McCall, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. It seems that David, for the rest of her life, refused to be with her. But kept her as his wife not allowing her to go back to her husband, Palti. McCall's was truly an unenviable and pitiable situation. And though David was a type and shadow of Jesus Christ, this passage makes it clear that he wasn't the Christ. He was a man after God's own heart, to be sure. But he still had a human heart within him. And so I think we can safely say, without being too harsh or critical of David, that he had sinned against his wife, as all husbands do. We can also safely say that McCall had sinned against her husbands, as all wives do. McCall had allowed herself, or allowed her circumstances, rather, to affect not only the way that she viewed her husband, she allowed those circumstances to color her view of the worship of the Lord to the point where she was unwilling to join in to that worship. And in that way, she wasn't too different from the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees who challenged Jesus in his day. Now, the scripture passage that we read from Matthew 21, it takes place, as you know, right after Jesus had cleansed the temple. He had rid it of the false worship and commerce that had been taking place in, a, in the Gentile court of all places where the Gentiles were supposed to worship but couldn't because they were taken over by the tables of the money changers and the sellers of various animals. And needless to say, these religious leaders in Jesus' day, they weren't too happy about what Jesus had done in cleansing the t- table, temple and flipping over the tables and driving out the money changers. They looked upon his actions with contempt they were indignant that all kinds of people were coming to Jesus right after that happened and that he was healing them. And the children, the children were happily crying out in the temple, no doubt themselves twirling in joy. And the Pharisees were offended. And when they expressed this offense to Jesus, he said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise The Pharisees looked upon the worship of children which God had ordained 
They looked down upon that worship and they held it in contempt. Brothers and sisters, when the littlest members of our church make their noises, when they do their things, and it's so tempting to be bothered by the disturbances. Imagine what the church would be like if there were no little children in it. And how dead it would seem. When they're making those little noises, whatever they may be, they are doing just what God created them to do. And in that way, they are worshiping the Lord. And that worship is ordained by the Lord and gives Him far more glory than adults who worship Him while having contempt in their heart for the littlest ones among us. Their bitterness toward Jesus, these Pharisees, these scribes, these leaders of the church, it was far less justifiable than McCall's was toward David. Jesus was God in the flesh. They had no grounds to despise the worship that children and other people were offering unto Him. But the end result of the bitterness was the same. They looked down upon imperfect but true worship and derided it. They mocked it. They chose not to participate in it. These religious leaders in Jesus' day, they had, a worship, they had a duty to worship Jesus just as those children were worshiping Jesus. And McCall, as understandable as her reticence to do so, so may be, she had a duty to worship the Lord as the ark of the Lord was being brought into Jerusalem. But the religious leaders in Jesus' day, McCall and David's, they held themselves apart from God's people in worship. They absented themselves from the true and proper worship of the Lord. I suspect that I cannot prove, and so I want to be very careful about this and offer it as just a very tenuous proposal, that McCall's bitterness toward David was actually bitterness toward the Lord. Who had allowed all of the hard things McCall had experienced to happen. And that happens to you and me as well, doesn't it? We don't like hard circumstances. We go through life and we face hardship. And being the good reformed people that we are, who have at least a, a small understanding of the sovereignty of the Lord, when things go bad, we blame it on Him. The bile that McCall allowed to be exposed, the venting of her spleen that she poured out upon David was probably only a fraction of the bitterness that she held toward the Lord. She allowed her circumstances to color everything about her life. We have to guard against allowing our lot in life to become an excuse for not offering to the Lord the worship and the honor that He is due. Some of the most joyful people you will ever meet in life and see in worship are those who have suffered profound loss in this life. And some of the most bitter are those who have been given so much on a silver platter. But David, imperfect David, is a reminder not to put your confidence in princes. David was a type of Christ, but he was not Christ himself. 
And all of his imperfections proved that he was not the one that Israel or we are looking for. David merely served to point to his Lord who would come later. And so when Jesus ascended the mount into Jerusalem, a thousand years after the ark ascended the mount into Jerusalem, he went up with a shout. The throngs of people singing and shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, men and women and children rightly worshipped him, just as David and so many others had done when the ark of the Lord was brought into Jerusalem. But Jesus did not merely represent the presence of God with his people as the ark did. Jesus was God with his people. He lived and breathed and ate and slept and walked with them. And he, was made, he has made it possible for sinners like you and me, bitter and broken, to know him and to worship him. By faith in Christ, you can transcend your current circumstances. You can transcend the circumstances that are in your past that have shaped you and pushed you toward bitterness and anger. By faith in Christ, however bleak your circumstances are, you can transcend those and truly worship the Lord. Sometimes even that so-called good life can distract us from worship just as much as dire circumstances can. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been set free from that which held you in bondage. And you are now able to worship Jesus as he deserves Your past or your present circumstances, as undesirable as they may be, they do not hold you in bondage. Their ties, their fetters have been cut. You can worship the Lord as you ought to do. And if God found David's worship acceptable, imperfect sinner that he was, he will most certainly find yours acceptable. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't be held captive to your circumstances so that they prevent you from worshiping the Lord. Believe in Jesus Christ and his spirit whom he will give to you will enable you to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful to you, dear Lord. We're thankful that in Jesus Christ, by faith in him, having been united to him, you have set us free. Lord, we have already come through many dangers, toils, and snares. And we know that there are many, many more before us. But we pray that by your spirit, you would protect us from allowing those circumstances, those hardships, those trials in our lives to so fill us with sorrow, to so fill us with bitterness, to so fill us with frustration that we can't worship you. Please, Lord, guard us against that, we pray. Please give us the joy of our salvation. Please help us, O Lord, to raise our voices in true worship of the Most High King so that we might worship you with all that we are. 
We thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence among us. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.